This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions and interviews on software engineering topics every two weeks. Thanks to our audience and the partners listed on our website for supporting the podcast. Okay, so uh, welcome listeners to another episode, a new episode on Software Engineering Radio. This time we talk with uh, John Wiegand about living architectures. So uh, welcome, John. Good to talk to you, Martin. Um, it's great to have you on the show. Would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Tell us a little bit about your background, your history, and uh, what are you doing these days? Very good. So if, if I back up to the beginning, I started off as a small talk programmer. Um, more than 20 years ago, and applied the Smalltalk um, language uh, to working on embedded systems. I was an oscilloscope designer and transitioned from that through a, a range of other opportunities, but switched from doing application programming into uh, developing tools. And so I built Smalltalk tools and then moved to building Java development environments, and from that uh, into Eclipse. Uh, was involved in creating the Eclipse platform and the architecture underneath that. And that, that was really an interesting time. And my interest at that point then transitioned into building community and did, a, did work in establishing the Eclipse Consortium and then the Eclipse Foundation, getting the underpinnings of the open source project the way we'd like. And that, that was a very important time of learning both um, how good architectures are helpful, but also how they are valuable in establishing ecosystem and whole open environments. Anyway, after that, my, my next work and what, what I'm still involved in today is instead of focusing as much on desktop tools, the focus is what can we do architecturally um, in terms of the server-based tools. So again, the similar thought, trying to build an architecture that lets us bring a range of tools uh, together, server-based tools this time, and allow them to, to work together well so we provide additional value to who, who's ever putting these tools together. Um, I transitioned, again, another dimension of transition, this is a more of a personal observation, went from leading the development effort um, for some of the first jazz-based products. I was leading the Rational Team Concert effort to a role now as an architect uh, looking at the product portfolio and the, I'll call it the ecosystem issues, but it's how we define something so that anyone can build applications to this structure. And th that's really my, my focal point. It's how to be successful uh, and enable success uh, in product integration. You know, it often looks like we're talking about something that's developer-centric, but really my, my focus is not just the inside developer, the people creating tools, but what are the characteristics of a tooling environment that makes the consumers of those tools effective? And then similarly, what, what do we do in the development side to make that possible? So that gives you just a, a quick quick overview of the kinds of things I've been up to lately, transitioning from uh, a single language to a, a supporting desktop tools over uh, for a range of different kinds of development, uh, to now focusing on you know the, the broader problems of 
team collaboration, uh, planning, planning the work, um, tools for supporting the development of the work, and then uh, the testing aspects that, that follow on, including to what happens after the software is deployed, being able to have traceability from the you know initial concept all the way through to the deployed software and being able to track you know things that are successful, things that aren't successful, and looking at the the whole development lifecycle. Um, today we we talk about living architectures. That's the title of a talk you gave at EclipseCon. Um, what do you mean by by living architecture? What is that? Well, in, instead of talking about an architecture in particular, there's a range of different architectures that people use, and they're valuable uh, for the individual problems that they're solving. But what I was trying to get across with this notion of living architectures is characteristics of architectures that are important, at least for certain systems. So if you're building open systems um, where you want to have a, um, well, you need significant scalability. You need to be able to support a broad team. In fact, team outside of the normal sense where you have multiple organizations involved. Um, you have all these dimensions at once. You need to be able to enable multidimensional progress. So what are some characteristics of an architecture that you need to be able to support this kind of development? And then the next dimension is how do you support this kind of development? How do you create an architecture when the requirements on the architecture aren't known in advance. So you're, you're working in this area where you need to be able to adapt and evolve as you go and be able to add more capabilities to it. So I coined this phrase living architectures to refer to an architecture that's set up to adapt to the, the changing demands or the characteristics of an architecture that we can put in place up front that will help us do this. And you know, if I, if I go ahead and look at Eclipse and Jazz as two places where I've been involved in this kind of thing, they both have this characteristic. So let me just use both of those as examples. So with Eclipse, what we established early on was this plugin architecture. And what that did, that was a fundamental decision. Uh, but once we had that decision in place, we then enabled everyone to come to the table and define their own plugins. So they could come in and define new extension points, new ways to for others to extend the system. And with that simple notion that, that we established in the platform proper, we enabled this broad ecosystem of progress. So th that's a case of a living architecture where much more was possible uh, than was initially intended, and it was ready to adapt. We can't even take credit for all the things that, that proved to be possible uh, because of that, but th that's the door that we opened. On, on the Jazz side, um, it's a separate set of requirements uh, that we needed to be able to focus on and, and be flexible with. And what we're seeing in the Jazz world is there's a range of server-based technologies that are out there today. There's people building uh, things in C Sharp. There's Java development. There's PHP. Um, and more, a whole range of technologies. And we can't come up and say, well, the way uh, to build what you need is to work on uh, any given technology. We need to focus on integration. So the living thought in the jazz context is to focus on protocol-based integration, defining in a language-neutral way what does it mean to integrate and to define these RESTful interfaces. And by doing that, the various 
uh, tool providers can implement the, the interface in whatever language they like as long as they support it. And so this is a case of another notion. We don't want to say living architectures will be RESTful or living architectures are things that follow the Eclipse plugin architecture. It's more of this classification scheme where we say a living architecture is one that's adaptable. It allows progress to be happening on multiple timelines. Um, it allows new concepts to show show up later and be able to put into the mix. And defining um, an architecture that's that flexible, uh, that adaptable, is, is what I'm calling a living architecture. And it matches nicely to these kind of, of agile software development where you just start small, growing over time? Really good point, Martin. So now we talk about an architecture as a static thing sometimes, or, or we, in our minds, sometimes think of an architecture as a problem that's completely solved before we start, and then it's just a matter of execution. But reality is we need to be agile in our architecture evolution as well. And this, the thought here is if you have a living architecture, one that's able to adapt, um, you're, you're in a place to actually uh, to do that, where you can grow up and you can address new needs and you can provide new concepts that you didn't have, have in place initially. And when I talk to people about this kind of having architectures in an agile space and you need to change all the time, maybe, um, they sometimes argue that, um, okay, but you cannot change everything. You need to make some decisions at the beginning and follow those decisions. You can't change just everything easily within your system. Um, how does it match to your, let's say, living architectures? I actually agree with the point, which is some decisions that we make, we, we put those in place and you can't get out of them. Let's just go look at the two examples I've already given us. Um, the Eclipse plugin architecture has a certain set of characteristics. If we came and said we wanted to discard that notion and replace it with a completely different notion of plugin, that could be done, but that's actually no longer uh, an adaptation of the Eclipse architecture, that's really a new architecture in that case. Similarly, on the Jazz side, we could come do something completely different, but it would be something completely different. Um, the more fundamental notions that you have in place and that you can stick to, it, it actually enables a faster rate of progress on, these, on the other dimensions. So there are things that are difficult to move. You know, on the Jazz side, if we decided that what we really would like would be something other than uh, focusing on RESTful interfaces. That would be a fundamental change, um, which would really cause us to unwind and, and start over. So those kind of things, some of these fundamental decisions cannot um, be redone without a, without a major reset. But, but a lot of other decisions can. Um, in the jazz world, as we look at providing additional services for new ways of integration, new ways of doing cross-cutting query or a cross-cutting notion of how uh, projects should work together. Those can, those kind of things can be layered on the system, and we can add those new notions as we go. So there are foundational elements that you're stuck with in a good way, uh, and then there's also the additional um, coloring in the system that that makes the system richer and and more powerful over time. Do you think it's it's better to have a very very small definition of the fundamentals? So. I don't want to uh, overstate this one, but my bias is towards a smaller set of core concepts. And then the remaining concepts are things that are layered outside. It, it gives a lot more freedom, both in the immediate term. It means you don't need to be as far along to start. 
but it also lets you define new concepts and lose the importance of old ones. So there can be something that you thought was of fundamental importance at an early stage that you realize really that didn't matter as much. If that was in the core of the system, then everybody's stuck with that baggage. But if it's something that's on in the layering side, you can just uh, quit leveraging it and, and move on. So I think the characteristics are better when you can keep the, the core concepts to something that you can describe in a, in a page or two or in a five-minute conversation. Um, versus something that you need to study in depth for you know for days or weeks on end before you can get started. How will you describe the the Eclipse fundamental architecture in five minutes? So the the Eclipse fundamental architecture I, I tried to give an overview of in just as we started here. It's a notion of we have plugins. Plugins define extension points, um, and they can contribute to extension points that someone else defined. And that's the whole that's the whole story. In addition, there are some plugins that are available for you to leverage to build a desktop application, and those can be exploited. But in terms of the basic Eclipse architecture, it's about this 30-second to, to one-minute story. Mm, and you would add the, the Java language to it, or isn't it tied to Java? The Java language is how we implemented our uh, plugins. So I, I would actually not focus on the Java language when I spoke immediately. In fact, in our early days of Eclipse, we, we in the back of our mind, imagined that you could be implementing plugins in any language. Now, it turns out we never did go ahead and enable that, and it, it would be more work, um, more, more than a little bit of work. But in terms of describing the story, the Java language is an implementation detail, um, an important one because it's what we're working with and the frameworks that are available are, are Java-centered. But in terms of just understanding the concept, if, if I was trying to talk to another uh, software developer and give them the flavor of it, I would talk about the notion of plugins independent of Java before I came back and filled in the, the Java implementation point. Okay. And how would you describe the Jazz architecture in uh, five minutes? So the Jazz architecture is based on the architecture of the web. So if you have the architecture of the web in mind, uh, you, you have a good underpinning. So look at the world of linked data instead of linked um, web pages. So the various artifacts that your uh, software development environment works with, things from, things from planning through to requirements, your, um, your plans, the test cases uh, that you're building near it, the, the uh, source code itself, All these pieces are um, resources that we establish a URL for, and then we establish relationships. We do relationships with um, just in our uh, content, having a, a reference to the, the, the other artifacts. So that's the basic story of the linked data. And then we have a range of services uh, that we can provide. We've defined a set of domain services uh, And we've done that in an open way at openservices.net. Those interfaces define what does it mean to integrate with a change management system or a requirements management system or a quality management system. And those can be implemented by any tool in any language. In addition, we have a set of integration services. This is just another dimension. Integration services let us have a cross-cutting notion of what does it mean to be part of a project or how to do query across all these tools. So just to circle back and tell the whole story, we have integration services um, that are provided uh, by Jazz, and then we have 
this notion of open services, which are the domain services that can be implemented by any tool. And the whole the whole services are based in a RESTful style? Absolutely. So we've taken a RESTful approach for all the services that we're building. What role does the, the let's say, more or less in the RESTful thing, it's, it's, it's even called old-fashioned, um, but what about API design? So even if you use REST, you still have some kind of API, some kind of semantics for servers um, and things like that. What what do you think, what role does API design has in, in the JS world or the JS living architecture style? Yeah, so, so when you take a RESTful approach, uh, th that's a style of doing development, but it, we can't discount Uh, the need of having well-defined interfaces, even if we're working in a RESTful way, if we're working in other more traditional ways, we can actually establish horrible RESTful interfaces. It, you, you, you can do, you can build things that are tightly coupled, you can leak too many concepts, you can muddle the consumer versus the provider um, notions and get those um, basically integrated together in, in bad ways. So the notion of doing solid API design, understanding what the concepts are, who the, who the consumer of the interface is, who the provider is, and getting that in the right place is really important. Um, and so I, I think API design continues to be an important skill and something that we, we need to take diligent care to regardless of our uh, architectural approach. Um, do you think that the, the the way you design APIs is different in a RESTful world than in a traditional, let's say, Java API framework world? There are differences. The, the, you, need, we, you need to look at things differently. Um, the, the traditional framework solution focuses on um, the, the call chain much more uh, centrally, and the data becomes something that gets carried along. I'm speaking in uh, broad generalities where in a RESTful approach, the real focus is on understanding the concepts and making sure you get the right resources in, in place. And, and that's the central, the central focus. So it, it's a different mindset. Uh, and so it, it takes practice at getting used to it. But the importance of having a good interface applies just as well uh, in, in both cases. You think that, that this kind of architecture is somehow moving back from the object-oriented world back into some kind of data-centric world? Well, it, part of that is true. Um, th there's, some, there's some truth in that observation, Martin. Uh, but I, I don't want to overplay it. Uh, we, the Java language is going to continue to be valuable, as are a range of other languages that are going to have um, object-oriented characteristics. But in terms of establishing these loosely coupled architectures, the the boundary that you want when you're language neutral likely doesn't want to talk about notions like inheritance. It really wants to focus on what is the data and how does it connect and then enable a range of ways for that data to be exposed. You think that the typical framework APIs we use inheritance and stuff like that um, are then let's say, reduced to the implementation of specific services um, and not so important anymore in your whole architecture? So I, I would say that they're locally important. So uh, in terms of the cross-cutting interfaces, what's exposed at the language-neutral protocol level 
I don't think we want to be able, we don't want to talk inheritance at that level is my, my bias. However, when you're providing implementation frameworks and toolkits, there's a whole range of um, elements that we have in those, those toolkits. And the, the characteristics of the language that we're using is, is something that we would tap into. So in, in that regard, we would be um, leveraging libraries. We'd create frameworks. There would be, um, we, we just naturally get code sharing through some of the um, usages of, of inheritance and just the uh, object-oriented design of those uh, toolkits. So, so I think they're a complementary notion where we don't try to have the whole world talk in terms of object-oriented concepts, but in local, local toolkits, we still leverage that. Let's say um, I would like to start a project. What do you think, what should be the first steps? I really would like to do some kind of living architecture. I would be flexible because I do some agile development. Um, what would your advice be to me? Well, I draw attention to a few things. And given I haven't really put together the, the canonical list here, I'm sure I'll miss some of the important notions. But starting with a strong team, uh, people with strong design and implementation skills both, I think is a really important characteristic, is a, a strong team that can really make things happen. Then establishing a, a common view of the goal that you're trying to achieve and a shared view of this core architecture. Um, the what are we going to treat as bedrock? Once you have those two characteristics, so you have a strong team that can really make things happen that has this uh, shared view of the goal, even if imprecise in terms of all the characteristics, you're now set up to work in an agile way of making it happen and then iterating on both the 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 layered part of the architecture, but but also on proving that the problems that you're solving are are meeting the the customer need. So being able to work on both of those dimensions at once, I think really important. People like me, you know, I have this architecture title. Um, I believe that people like me are really um, have a support role in this versus the central role. The central role is a strong team with great design skills and do it skills. And when you can have bring that together with a view of where you're going, good things will happen. So it sounds like you you're helping other teams to do that stuff currently. Th that's my my role is to help. Uh, clarify the goals so that we're all uh, pushing in the same way, join in on some of the problem solving as part of the team um, when given an opportunity. I, I, I both enjoy that and uh, have a little bit to contribute. But I, I really do think of my role as one of helping, help, helping the teams and the efforts uh, work effectively. You know, in the past, I spent a fair bit of time in the, in the Eclipse world. We talked about the architecture of Eclipse, but then we spent a lot of time talking about how we built Eclipse and what does it mean to do effective software development. I, I consider my current role, even if um, you know, my title is as an architect, really has those same characteristics, helping to define the architecture, but also then working how, how can people use that architectural um, definition to help build effective software, how to make your, your project, the individual pieces um, work more effectively. What do you think are the, the most common problems that you see when you help people? Well, I'm kind of belaboring one point, so I'll, I'll mention it and maybe something else will come to mind uh, subsequently. Uh, one of the big problems is not having a clear picture of what the problem is. So 
a, a vague impression of the assignment versus a more precise one just because it's for a range of reasons. Sometimes the problems aren't aren't well defined in advance. Uh, other other times um, people have a pain point. So they have a specific pain point, but they haven't articulated the solution. So that effort of translating from a difficulty, a pain point, into what should be done is is always hard. Is to get that right, that's, that's something that's that's just um, a, a challenge. The, the other thing that I do see is we have a lot of skills in object-oriented design and we have less experience to date, but it's growing. You know, over the last few years, the industry as a whole, we've, we've built up a, a body of expertise, but I, I know that it, uniformly we're not there as yet. So um, it, it takes a, a little bit of an additional effort to get a good uh, resource design in place. So I, I, I see those, the, the one high-level problem of uh, making sure that you're you're doing the right thing and then I guess the, the detail problem that I would flag would be um, practice in the resource design. The ongoing effort for the tools to continue to uh, support the effort better and um, you know the, the industry is moving the tools forward but I think there's room for even further improvement there and, and everyone's working on it. I don't want to go into any particulars on that point but better tooling is always helpful. Yeah, the second point always reminds me on um, on my time at the university where the people told me object-oriented programming and say, oh, please don't focus on the data. The data is hidden and then secret inside the object. So focus on the behavior and on the API. Uh, and now I see this is slightly moving towards, um, okay, um, behavior and object-oriented stuff. It's very important for building stuff, but for designing the APIs, the data comes more into into the center of interest. It's, uh, I think it's pretty interesting. It is. L let me actually tell you a story about it. And I think it makes it pretty easy to picture. So I, I won't speak about any program in, in the universe, but if you look at what it means with respect to software tools, um, we, we've, we're building a range of tools, but what the tools are doing is they're manipulating the data. They're manipulating the requirements, the test cases, the, the work items, and the source code. Well, when all is said and done, the fact that you had tools to work with that is somewhat interesting, but this data that you created, the understanding the set of requirements in the test cases and having the code artifact, that's something that's going to live a long time. And so being able to have that data uh, independent of the tools and be able to work with it and analyze it, understand it, um, is really important. And it's something that we really, in terms of uh, software tooling architectures, really hadn't paid as much attention to in the past where we were really focusing, I would say, on the tools first, and then as a side effect, they produce some data. And what we're paying attention to more now is that data is really important, and the tools work and manipulate that data. So they're complementary, but they're both important. Um, coming back to, to the other point you mentioned about um, it's difficult to find the right, the right goals and the right transition from uh, what is a pain point and how to transform it into some kind of solution or something that helps you. Um, how do you think, what, what can help me to figure out if I'm on the right path while doing this transition? So I have two, two reactions to it. So, so the first is making sure that you motivate the problem that you're working on, the, the next increment of the system on solving a specific problem. So doing something with a story in mind. 
to say this is the capability we're providing, not we're adding this feature, we're adding feature X to add feature X, but we're doing it because we're addressing this pain point. Because if we're doing it for that reason, then we actually have a checkpoint at the end of the iteration to say, well, have we helped um, the user out who's, who's in that situation? Have we addressed their pain and we can get their feedback on it? Um, and if, if we happen to be the user ourselves, um, we, we can self-assess. Uh, if you're just adding a feature, the only conclusion you can make is, yes, I did something, but you can't, it's really difficult to get your hands around, well, how much progress am I making towards solving a real problem? And so I really think the focus on a specific use case to address a specific pain point uh, is a really important um, mindset to have when, when doing new work. It's uh, features don't provide value. It's solutions, capability provided that together addresses a problem is what, what our users want and need. When I think about these, putting this into relation to typical agile development where people say, okay, do a short iteration and put the system into production right away, right after the iteration to get feedback if that really solves a problem in the real world. Um, would you agree? And, and how would how long would these kind of cycles or how, how long do you um, do you create these kind of feedback cycles putting the system in production? So I, I agree that uh, theoretical feedback or hypothetical feedback or we hope it solves the problem is is not helpful. So we want to get it, uh, you know, the, the pieces we build in front of our customers and I encourage everyone to do that kind of thing. This The cycles we've been working in are four-week cycles. We found that works pretty well. I know some uh, prefer uh, shorter cycles yet and I, and I can understand that. It depends on the degree of distribution of the development team. Uh, the more co-located the team is, I believe you can shrink the cycles to even shorter. But if you're working on an open source project or uh, in a, another project where the, the teams are uh, distributed around the world, the additional time is, at least for us, has proven to be helpful to, to get through the effort of putting together a plan for the iteration and doing the development work for it and validating along the way and then getting it out uh, for people to put to use. So in ours, four weeks, we've, we've done six weeks in the past, um, but that kind of iteration feels feels pretty good for, for our experience. And if you put the things out in, in four-week cycles, um, is it really for for end users doing their daily business with that tool? Well, we, we did get that in the Eclipse world. That the teams were adopting it at, at that cycle. Um, what we're seeing with some of our newer tools is people uh, pick up these iterations. They don't pick them all up. So the, uh, customers aren't interested in changing their server-based infrastructure every four weeks. Um, but a set of our users pick up some of every milestones, right? So we get some feedback all the time and in addition to our own internal consumption. So in the case of the Rational Team Concert and the um, other jazz products that Rational is building, we're actually building those and uh, deploying them for internal consumption on that regular basis. And, and our customers are deploying it, you know, some of the milestones, but not all. Okay, so you, you're also in this very, very nice situation where you can eat your own dog food and learn learn yourself what you've built. Um, do you also help teams not producing developer tools, but producing software solutions for, for people not doing software development? 
Well, yeah, we we believe that the jazz tools are are valuable in general. Um, the question that we need to ask there is, that, so milestone-based development is still a, a valuable thing, but the, the question again that we want to ask is, what's the best way to get the customer feedback in, in those loops? And whether it's making your content available continuously, updating your um, your, your web in real time, you know, basically you're in continuous delivery mode, um, which is a highly successful approach. It, it just depends on the specific that uh, the the customers engaged in, but still the story of milestone-based development, um, building your iterations and getting feedback on them at as regularly as possible, I think is just a good thing. If you look back over the past, I'm, I'm not sure you you must be involved in this jazz and eclipse technology for I don't know ten years or so. Um, if you look back over the past 10 years, what would you do differently if you would start, let's say, um, a Java-based IDE or the Eclipse platform today? On the Eclipse side, Eclipse has been more successful than I would have ever hoped. And we, we had fond ambitions of how things could go, uh, but I would have never expected this things to go uh, this broadly. Uh, there's a few things I would have I, I would consider doing differently, but they're they're more fine tuning. Um, I, I would really, at this point, if, even in hindsight, be reticent to to do anything that would have caused the adoption to be less than it is. Um, so the the one thing that I think could have been helpful is to seed a few more projects earlier uh, in in the effort. So we had the platform early with the Java development tools and the PDE there. And then we we established a technology incubator and, a, and another tools project to try a few other things out. I think it would have been valuable in those early days to have a few more initiatives going on uh, at the same time, just to try more things, make go even broader um, and learn more. And, and that's where we're at today at Eclipse, where Eclipse just has a, a large number of projects. I think we could have bootstrapped the ecosystem a little bit if we could have got there um, sooner. So I think we could have... Um, made even more progress if, if that could have been the case. And from the architectural point of view? Architecturally, uh, I'm pretty happy. Again, I, I think the risk of doing something different is greater um, than uh, the value that'd be provided. There, there's some fine-tuned, may, maybe some bugs in the way the, the plug-in activation worked. I think there's some refinements that we could do in that area that would make things better. But that's entirely secondary to the overall structure. The story we tell about plugins with extension points, I think, was a, a really nice story. Um, tapping into some of the uh, characteristics of the web, which is um, going now, I think makes good sense. But 10 years ago, in the early Eclipse days, that wouldn't have been a good, good investment. Um, and the importance of having solid desktop tools, I think, is still there. So, again, I'm pretty happy uh, with the the set of trade-offs that that we as a community made around Eclipse um, and uh, the opportunities that we've opened now. And if you look back um, over the past years of the jazz development? So on, on the jazz side, I, I've, I have a similar tension. Um, we really didn't start with the architecture of the web. We, we started on this exercise of exploring and seeing what's possible in terms of collaboration. We learned a lot there. And I think that was really important. I would have appreciated it if we would have seen that we wanted to go to the web architecture a bit earlier. 
But I will put a caveat in place on this. So I, it would have been useful to have that so we could have been starting to think and adopt some of those thoughts. But one of the challenges that happens um, in systems is if you make the initial amount of work um, too much invention for the development team that, that you have working on it, um, and things aren't clearly enough articulated, it actually does cause a little bit of um, swirling going on in those early days. So in hindsight on the jazz side, I would have liked to have had a little bit more of the web thinking in at the early days. I think that would have been valuable to us. And um, But the other aspect of doing the prototyping, the exploration, and the learning, that we can get to a place to really understand what does collaboration mean? I think that was great. And I, I wouldn't do anything to undermine that part. And looking today, the architecture of the jazz system with the, with the web architecture and style, um, you would do exactly the same again, right? Yeah. So I'm really pleased with that. I would say right now we're in the, the layering part of it. So we've, we now have described and defined the architecture and we've built uh, the core pieces and we're refining those. But we're in the place now of doing that layering. And we're really happy with where we're at in terms of our uh, core and now it's the I'll call it the fun part of, of building the the layers around it to to make it more valuable um, and to enable greater degrees of integration. You briefly mentioned the the it's just just a sidetrack now um the importance of desktop tools. Do you think that that's still the case today? So I believe there's a range of tools that people want and in today's development. If you're doing uh, Java programming or you're doing other, uh, you're building um, in C Sharp, we'll say C++, uh, des desktop development tools and the integrated development environment uh, feel is really valuable. And I think that's going to continue for some time. There, there's a range of other interactions, though, that developers have um, where we're doing a lot of work around planning. What we're doing is breaking down our work into the, the various sub pieces. And um, you know, kicking off a, a build and tracking our build quality and trying to look at how these things connect, it's not clear to me. In fact, it's pretty clear uh, that desktop tools aren't required for all that work. So I think what we're in right now is this hybrid environment where the desktop tool is valuable for the heavy development effort, the heavy uh, coding, debugging uh, effort. But as you broaden out and consider some of the other aspects of the life cycle, uh, especially around the, the planning and the, the tracking aspects of it, the, the web is becoming increasingly promising. And what I think over time, there will be more and more aspects of our problem solved in the web. And I don't want to say when we'll get to the place where, where everything perhaps goes there, but, uh, but I believe that's the trend, that more and more um, and, and over the next decade, we'll we'll learn more about that. I think I heard that Java is still the the main language you're using for your tool development these days. But do you think that will change in the near future? Well, two um, two things I can imagine happening. So uh, Java is going to continue for for a significant period of time. We both have an extensive code base today, and uh, I, I can see us we'll we'll continue to to augment and elaborate that. And we'll go there. So, so I see that continuing for for several years, but the the growing use of um, JavaScript and Dojo and uh, some of the other um, technologies that fit into the the web centric space, those are going to continue to grow in popularity and usefulness. And there'll be both tooling support to make us more effective using those things. There'll be additional libraries created 
Um, and there'll probably be new, new extensions, you know, as we see HTML5 grow up, um, we'll be able to tap into that more and more. So, so I think we'll see a lot going there to, to complement what we've done in the past, um, just in working in Java. Could you imagine implementing a whole IDE environment in JavaScript? Um, I can't imagine it today, but that'll be an interesting question for us to ask um, down the road. You know, are there things that can we can do to evolve uh, the capability there? So today, it's not even imaginable. But there's partial interfaces that can be created in JavaScript that are that are pretty impressive. So I, I think we'll see more and more happening, um, and we'll see what the, the breakthroughs are that that get us to the next level there. So uh, I think uh, we, we get a good impression what, what you think about living architectures. We talked a lot about these kind of agile software development, I think. So any other, let's say, pearls of wisdom you would like to share with our listeners? Martin, I think you've uh, emptied the store of uh, ideas from me for this morning. Um, what, what, I, what I'd like to do is encourage people to, to think about this, this observation when it's applicable, right? If you're in a constrained problem, uh, traditional thoughts on architectures makes full sense. But when you think about these open, adaptable, evolving systems, hopefully we uh, triggered some, some thoughts for people to absorb. And I'd like to hear about other applications of this thought. So if people are digging into uh, in their own areas, uh, if these, this approach and these styles are resonating, I, I'd love to hear more about it and uh, see if there's more than just a, a nugget here, but something that's broadly applicable. Great. John, thank you very, very much for spending the time to talk uh, with us. It was a great session, and uh, thank you very much. Thanks, Martin. Take care. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Radio. Software Engineering Radio is an educational program brought to you by Hillside Europe. If you want more information about the podcast and all the other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. If you want to support us, you can donate to the SE Radio team via the website, or you can advertise for SE Radio, for example, by clicking on the Dick Reddit delicious links and the slash dot button. To contact the team, please send email to team at se-radio.net, or if it is specific to an episode, please use the comments facility on the website so other people can react to your comments. This episode of SE Radio, as well as all other episodes, are licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks to Charlie Crow and the Podsife Music Network for the music used in this show. The song is called Vegas Hard Rock Shuffle.